So uh, it was about 500 years ago this month uh, that a German monk named Martin Luther uh, wrote out 95 arguments against the way that the church was treating various matters, most particularly how they were handling the issue of the forgiveness of sin. Because what had happened was there was a growing theory among the priests and the cardinals and the pope that the church possessed the right and the ability to forgive sin, and that the forgiveness of sin could be extended not just to people in this life, but also to those who had already died and were experiencing something called purgatory, which was the temporary, though it could take millions of years, purging of the residual sin that you still had when you died. And so the way that you could um, accelerate the process of uh, getting your loved ones out of purgatory was to pay money. And the priests would pray, and the church would knock some years off of their sentence. And you can imagine that somebody who really believed that and really loved their loved ones who had gone on before them would be compelled to give money in order to alleviate their suffering, and so it became very popular. And uh, there was a man who worked for the church, his name was Tetzel, and he would go around and, and he would raise money for these uh, forgivenesses, they were called indulgences. And, and this is what really angered Luther, uh, because Luther believed that the church, though it had certain powers that he came to realize later it didn't have, didn't have the authority to become rich selling forgiveness to people. He really believed that came from God. And so this was one of the 95 arguments that he wrote out against the church, and he took that document and he nailed it to the door of Wittenberg Chapel. And that sounds very dramatic. It sounds um, like a very bold move for, for Luther. Um, to go and to take a document like that and to nail it to the door of the church. And, and we have visions of him with this big mallet and a spike, and he is driving it into the door as if to say, you know, here I stand. Now, it was bold. Uh, it was a conviction. Uh, it was courageous. But it was also rather normal in terms of how messages were delivered those days. That, that was how you delivered the mail. In fact, it probably wasn't the only notice that was nailed to the door at that time. But what made that notice different from all the others is that it was really an indictment, and it was a call to debate. It was an invitation for anybody who disagreed with Luther to meet with him and argue these points that he was making. And what came from that was what we call the Reformation. And the Reformation was the effort on the part of men like Luther and, and later Zwingli and Calvin and some other names you might recognize, to recover the gospel. That's really what they wanted to do. They weren't, they weren't trying to take down the system. They weren't trying to overturn the existing church, not at the beginning. In, in fact, it was the church that turned against them when they began to teach these things as coming straight from the Bible. But the result was that it got distilled down to these five really important solas or onlys, you could say meaning that the Christian faith could be boiled down to, to, to these truths. And, and the first one was faith alone. 
And we've been singing about that this morning. We've been reading about it from God's Word. It's all throughout the book of Hebrews. It's the main theme. And out of the Reformation came a very clear understanding that if a person is saved, they are saved by faith alone. And that faith, that faith, that that belief, that trust comes to you as a gift. God gives it to you. And the way that it's exercised is because he takes your, your dead heart and he makes it alive again. It's called regeneration. It means to be made alive again. And he makes that heart alive again. And then with that gift of faith, you exercise that faith. And with that faith, you then believe and you are saved. Now, you would think that after 500 years, the church would have got this figured out, that this would be like a non-negotiable at this point. But it's not. In fact, believe it or not, we are moving into, I think, a new season where this doctrine is coming under attack again. In fact, there are people that are willing to actually smuggle works back into the gospel again. And it's happening through some rather high-profile people, and it's happening uh, in little churches. It's happening all over the place as people are trying to say that faith is not alone. It has to be faith plus some kind of work. You must have to do something. Faith alone is not enough. And what we're seeing is this growing divide between the law and and the gospel. The gospel, which teaches one thing, and, and, and the law, which taught something very different. The law, which though it was good, though God created it and instituted it and, and, and developed it for our good, uh, that it came from him, it's not going to pass away, his moral law. But his moral law was held up as an example of everything that you and I could never attain to. Have you ever um, had an experience like that, where you were held to a standard you felt you could never attain? Maybe an expectation from a boss or from a parent or from a coach? And they demand something of you, and you just say to yourself, I'm not humanly capable of achieving that. I can't get there. What that creates within somebody when it comes to their understanding of the gospel is that it creates a need to look to somebody else who has done that. And that's when we point your eyes to Christ. We uphold the law as being good and righteous, but unattainable. And so when you're desperately trying to figure out, then how do I attain it? We point our eyes to Christ who did it for us. He obeyed perfectly, and his obedience is given to us when we're saved. He is the one who accomplished it fully, and that accomplishment is granted to us when we are saved. He is the one who fulfilled the law completely and therefore lived the life that we could never live, and then as an innocent person allowed himself to be sacrificed to pay the penalty for all who could never live up to that standard. So he lived the life he could never live. You died the death you could never die in order to grant you a salvation that you could never earn. It's the essence of the gospel. And that's what the author of Hebrews is desperately trying to bring the people back to. Because uh, persecution had come, and they were beginning to feel the heat. And the gospel was causing them to be ridiculed by everyone around them. And they were tempted to go back to Judaism because at least Judaism was a recognized religion and it was safe. They weren't part of some radical cult. They weren't part of some totally new idea. They were thinking that with all this persecution, maybe it's better if I just sort of apologize for distancing myself from Judaism and I just go back to what it was before and all of this pain and persecution will go away. And the author of the Hebrews is saying, beloved, don't do it. That system's dead. Everything it offered you is gone. Everything that it did was point to Christ, and now that he is here, you cling to him and him alone. And because he was um, aware of their background, he wasn't insensitive to their context, 
He said, listen, um, Hebrews, who were Jews, I'm going to use your own people as an example to show you that faith has always been the way that you were saved, whether in the Old Testament or in the New, in the Old Covenant or the New, under the time of the ancient ones and the patriarchs and Moses or under the time of Christ. And that's what he's been doing in Hebrews 11. So take your Bibles if you haven't, turn to Hebrews 11. We're going to continue on in this chapter. And in Hebrews 11, verses 23 to 28, we're going to learn about Moses. And Moses is probably one of the most famous characters in in the Bible. Moses was the hero, the champion. Moses was the ultimate for the Jewish people. He was greater in their mind than Adam. He was greater than Abraham. He was so great because he was their prophet. He was their priest. He was their liberator. He was the one that rescued them from slavery in Egypt. In fact, later on when he dies, God himself has to take Moses' body and bury it and conceal it because the concern was the people would find his body and they would turn it into an idol and they would worship it. Maybe they would embalm it or something like they had learned how to do in Egypt. They would, they would make it like, uh, like Lenin's body and they would sort of parade by and they would look at it maybe in a, in a case and they would honor it, they would venerate it. And God says, we can't have any of that. I'm going to take his body. I'm going to bury it myself. But he also makes up the third sort of individual that is mentioned here. He, he began, the writer to the, the, the Hebrews did, back at the beginning of chapter 11 by defining faith, which is why we're calling this series Faith Defined and Described. He defined faith at the very beginning, and then he goes on to describe the way it looks in the lives of different people. So it began with the ancient ones, we said. That would be Abel and Enoch and Noah. And then the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And, and now here we are with Moses. And so listen to what the author says about this man, Moses. Hebrews chapter 11, and we're going to be in verses 23 through 28. This is God's word. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He was considered, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible." By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. This is God's Word. So this is the fourth in a series through this particular section of Hebrews. Again, faith defined and described. Today we're going to look at Moses. And if you want to look at the faith that Moses had, just by way of an outline, it's there in your bulletin if you want to follow along. We're going to look at the faith described this way as what you value, who you fear, and how you live. What you value, who you fear, and how you live. And at the very end, we're going to see the purpose. The purpose of this wrapped up where we see a clause that begins with so that, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Now, in order to give you a little bit of background here for Moses, let's um, sort of go all the way back if we can. Um, 
you remember that we talked about how Moses is in a line that ultimately leads to the Messiah. Moses is in a, in a history of family, if you will. And if we go all the way back to the beginning, one of the first heroes that we mentioned in uh, Hebrews 11 is Abel. But Abel, as you know, was killed by his brother Cain, and Cain certainly was not the one from whom the Messiah would come. Adam and Eve had another child, and his name was Seth. And so from Seth came this man Enoch, eventually, who was mentioned a couple of weeks ago. He is the one, remember, who, who was righteous, and he pleased God, and he preached against those who were living in ungodliness, and then God just took him away one day. And then from him came Noah. Noah and his seven other family members were the only ones saved by God when he destroyed the world by flood, and so he and his family started the line all over again. And from him eventually came Abraham. And from Abraham came Isaac, and Isaac, Jacob. And from Jacob, we usually talk about Joseph, because Joseph's the one that brought the children of Israel to Egypt to protect them. But, but today's story, it takes a turn. We're not going to talk about Jacob's son, Joseph, but Jacob's son, Levi. Because from Levi is who eventually came Moses, because Moses was a Levite. That's what it means. It means he was from the priestly tribe. It means that of the 12 tribes of, of the sons of Jacob, only one of them was allowed to serve as the priest before God, and he was from that tribe. Now, if you really like um, genealogies, I know some of you are like, that'd be awesome. Yeah, please, give me more. But this genealogy is given for you in Exodus 6, and I'm not going to go there. You can look it up later on. Exodus chapter 6, you can mark this down. But it is from Levi, okay? One of those 12 sons that were rescued by Joseph that come in to, to take up residence in Egypt to escape the famine. They, play, they stay in a place called Goshen, and they have generation after generation that are born to them. And so from Levi, you have these others that are born. Kohath is his son, and from him comes a man named Am, uh, Amram. And Amram marries his, his aunt, who is also a daughter of the line of Levi. And then the two of, of them are married, and from, or from Kohath and, 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 and her. And then you get Amram, and Amram marries a woman named Jochebed. And Amram and Jochebed have a son named Moses. But Moses here, and this is important, Moses is not their firstborn. Moses is living at a time when the pharaohs have changed hands and now they've forgotten Joseph. They're not favorable to the people anymore. They're turning the Jews into slaves. And when Moses is born, he is born as at least the third child because we know he's got an older brother named Aaron. He's three years older. And he's got an older sister named Miriam, who's probably like 12 or 13 at this point. And so obviously things have not been as bad as they are when Moses is born, because, because when Moses is born, the king had made a rule that if you had a child that was born who was a son, you were supposed to throw him into the Nile. Now you think we live in a difficult age with laws that are hard to follow? Imagine what it would be like living in a country where the king, who had all authority, made an edict that if you had a son that was born to you, you had to throw him into the river and drown him. That was the situation that was going on in Egypt at the time. And so when Moses is born to Amram and Jochebed, they notice something different about this child. They notice that he is beautiful. 
Now, I know what you're thinking. All children are beautiful. Every parent thinks their child's beautiful. I mean, it's not like Jochebed has this child and says, you know, oh, he's so beautiful. Because everyone says that. The word beautiful there, it's a word um, that actually comes from the word city. Uh, it means sophisticated. Uh, it means cultured. It means distinct from sort of the common people. So when it says that Moses was beautiful, they're saying that there's something special about this child. There's something unique. Uh, this child seems to possess a certain characteristic that is different from the other children, even different than Aaron and different than Miriam. And so what they do is after three months, when they can no longer hide him, it's no longer possible to, to keep him away from everybody. People know that, that this child has been born and that he's living there. They decide we're going to take this major act of faith and we're going to defy the rule of the king. He is not going to be thrown into the Nile. Instead, he is going to be placed into the Nile in a basket. And that basket is going to be covered with tar. And they're going to strategically lay it among the reeds. And they're going to trust God for what happens next. You see, this is what faith looks like when it's first played out in what you value. You see, they valued the life of Moses over the edict of the king. They valued the call of God to be obedient over the call of this wicked king to do evil. These parents are the first of the heroes in this story. Long before Moses does anything to demonstrate his faith, his parents demonstrated faith. And they put the child in the basket. They put the basket in the reeds. They sent his older sister to be a spy. And the daughter of Pharaoh comes down to bathe with the women who attended to her. And she hears the baby crying. And she opens up the basket, and there's the child, and she felt compassion on the child. Now, now this daughter could have said, my father made a law, throw this child into the Nile. I mean, allow yourself for a moment to experience the potential risk here. Imagine you're Miriam, you're standing on the sidelines, you're watching this happen, you know what the law is. This is Pharaoh's daughter. I mean, who's going to obey Pharaoh quicker than Pharaoh's daughter? I mean, it's a family issue, it's a family matter. She was part of the royal household. Why in the world would she defy her own father? The answer is that God in His mercy had decided that He would turn her heart in favor towards this child. And so she shows compassion, and she raises up Moses as one of her own. And the story gets even better because she turns to to Miriam and allows Miriam to go and find one of the women from the Hebrews to be a nurse for the child. You see, Pharaoh's daughter realizes this child is not Egyptian. This child's one of the Hebrew babies. And because Miriam happens to be close by, she says, hey, you, would you go, go, go in and go to the Hebrews and you go find me somebody who will nurse this child? Miriam, his sister. And guess who Miriam goes to find to nurse the child? His own mother. Isn't God's providence amazing? You see, when the values are put right, God in his mercy sometimes does these incredible things, and this is one example of it. And so, What you have is a boy growing up in the very household of Pharaoh, raised almost as one of his own sons. And for 40 years, Moses grows up as an Egyptian. He looked like an Egyptian. He acted like an Egyptian. He talked like an Egyptian. He walked like an Egyptian. He, some of you catch that. I didn't mean to say that. It slipped out. Sorry. Product of my generation. 
He wouldn't have distinguished him necessarily from the other Egyptians. And one day when he's out and he's walking around and looking at what's going on and the slave people are being beaten because at this point the pharaohs had turned against the people of Israel, the Jews, and they were making them into slaves and they were forcing them to work in terrible conditions. He sees one of his fellow Egyptians beating one of these Jewish slaves. And he steps in and, and he intercedes. And he kills the Egyptian. And then he buries him in the sand and he thinks he got away with it. Then he's out the next day and there are two <laughs> Hebrews fighting. And he goes up to break up the fight and they say, who made you the ruler over us? Are you going to kill me the way you killed the Egyptian? Uh-oh. Word's out. Word on the street is, Moses killed an Egyptian. Now, you might think, well, hey, I'm in Pharaoh's household. I can get away with that. I'm one of his children. I can murder if I want to. But the answer is no, because we know from the text in Exodus that talks about it that Pharaoh found out, and Pharaoh was enraged. The king was enraged. The king was going to come, and he was going to kill Moses. And so Moses, out of fear, runs away into the wilderness. But you'll notice here in the text that, that the author is explaining to us that Moses had made a choice before he ran away. The choice that Moses made was to identify with his own people instead of indulging in the sin in Egypt. Notice what he says. He made a choice. He made a choice to associate with his own people instead of all of the pleasures of sin that were available for him in Egypt. And we don't know exactly what it was like in the court of Pharaoh. We don't know exactly what the sin is that the author has in mind here. But among everything else, it certainly would have been the sin of rejecting his own people and instead saying, I'm going to take the easy road, the safe road. I am just going to go along with what's happening in Egypt, and I'm going to let all the Jews suffer because, frankly, it's really not my problem. And so what he does is he demonstrates his value. What does he want to do? He wants to be faithful to the Lord. He wants to be faithful to his own people. He wants to be like his parents, understanding that fearing God is more reasonable than fearing the king. He wants to be faithful in a way that eventually models faithfulness. He wants to choose to suffer rather than choosing to sin. He wants to refuse to be with the people of Egypt and instead be with the people of God. He chose, as one commentator put it, the stigma that rests on God's anointed. He was willing to engage with them and lose everything that he had in Egypt. The first way that faith is demonstrated here is by what you value, and he becomes an example for us. You know, ultimately, the author of the Hebrews says that Christ manifested this. If you look down at chapter 12 and verse 2, he says this, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That might be a new concept for you this morning. Um, if you're not a Christian or if you um, maybe have not heard that before in the churches that you've been in, but the reality is that, that Christ, when it says he despised the shame, what he means is that he, he deflected it. He, he, he didn't allow it to, to cloud his judgment. He didn't allow it to distract him. He made a beeline straight for that cross. And he did it for a reason. Because there was no other way for him to reconcile God to man. 
In fact, the author is very clear that he is the founder and the perfecter, the one who completes the faith that is granted to us. And because there is a joy on the other side of the cross, he endured everything that was inflicted upon him, and now he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, ascended right back to the place that is rightfully his. Here's the principle that I want you to understand, the principle I want you to remember, that on the other side of suffering is joy. On the other side of suffering is joy. How is it that you can value suffering and still be reasonable and rational? Because it's, it's irrational otherwise. Let's be honest about it. Nobody, no rational thinking person chooses suffering. That doesn't actually make sense. Please don't believe that the, that, that, that the Christian faith is, is based on some irrational sort of um, self-destruction. Like you gain some level of holiness in God's eyes if you just go about this sort of suicidal mission of giving up everything for nothing in return. It's quite the opposite. In, in fact, on the other side of that suffering was a joy that was incomparable to the suffering that was endured. It's the same thing that the Apostle Paul says when he says, I, I, I persevere in the face of all of these trials because I know that it is storing up for me a weight of glory. That these trials are momentary, these are light afflictions, there's really nothing compared to the glory that's coming. It was, it was the very essence of the gospel whenever Jesus encountered somebody who was trying to earn their way to heaven. And there's a wonderful story about a man, a rich young man, came to Jesus, and he said to him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And after they have a bit of a dialogue back and forth, Jesus sort of knowing that this guy was thinking, I'm, I, I'm good enough, I can earn my way there. Jesus says, okay, it's very simple. You know what the law is, right? And he said, yeah. He says, obey the law. Obey the Ten Commandments. And, and this man, in his pride, <laughs> he says, done. Great. I've been doing that since I was a child. Excellent. So let's get this straight. I've got the law figured out. I'm rich, which means I must be blessed, and uh, all I need really is this eternal life. It's just kind of like the cherry on top, and everything will be set. Tell me what I need to do. I'm ready. I've done everything else. And Jesus plays along with that. He says, fine, you want to go down that road? Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Now, that's not where the story ends, but that's where I want to end at the moment. That man thinks about the possibility of giving up his worldly possessions and giving it to the poor. And that's enough for him to walk away and say, I want nothing to do with this gospel. Now, did Jesus really mean that if you give up everything that you have and give it to the poor, it'll save you? Is that the key? Is that the trick? Is that how you have eternal life? Of course not. That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is doing is he is taking the weight of the law and he is laying it on top of this man. And he's basically saying, if law is what you want, law is what you'll get. And what this man realized is that the law actually crushed him. And so one of the things that I hope defines even our ministry from others is that when you come here, you're not going to be crushed with moral law. It's not about, well, what do I do to be saved? Well, here, you've got to clean up your life, and you've got to quit doing this and start doing that. That falls right into the hands of people who, who would say, well, this is how you're going to earn your way to salvation. Instead, no, it's that you take your eyes off of yourself and you put your eyes on the finished work of Christ and you believe, and that is what rescues you. That's the liberation. That's the good news. Amen? That's the good news of the gospel. But there's more to it, and I just got to add this. He, Jesus didn't just say, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. He says, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and your reward will be great in heaven. You see, that's the joy on the other side of the cross. 
It's always an exchange for something greater. When Moses gave up all of the sinful pleasures of Egypt, he did so in exchange for these glories and these joys and these rewards, the text says, just look at it, that far exceed anything that he had given up in this life. Moses was calculating this. I would rather suffer with them because I know that what's on the other side of it is greater. There is a reward. The first way is faith is described and in what he valued. Number two, who you fear. Now let's be quick to add here that this is not that Moses was so bold and brave when he was 40 years old that after he killed the Egyptian and found out people were looking for him, he just stood up to the king and said, I don't care, I don't fear you, I only fear God. No, he ran away in fear. It says that he ran away because he was terrified of the king. And back in Exodus in the account, we see that's why he ran. So just let's be clear, when it says here that he didn't fear the king, that wasn't originally. This is later on in life. Early on, he did fear the king, and so would you, frankly. When he saw that Pharaoh was coming after him, he was terrified, and so he ran away, ran away to Midian. Now, Midian, let me give you a little bit of background on this. Uh, Midian was, was a place that was about 100 miles away, straight across. He's out in the desert. He's out in the wilderness. Midian was one of his relatives. Because remember we talked about Abraham? How Abraham through Isaac had Jacob and Levi and down to Moses. Well, Abraham, after his wife died, Sarah, also had some more children. Now, now, now remember back to last week. Remember how, how it was a miracle that they had a child? Remember how, how his wife described him as, is as good as dead? It was not very nice. She said he's as good as dead at 99. Well, what she didn't know is that after she died, he would remarry at age 140 and have six more children. Abraham got married to a woman named Ketra when he was 140 years old, and he had six more children. And from this line comes this man, Midian, and all the people that are from him. And so when Moses runs away out of Egypt, he goes right over here to one of his distant relatives. And he meets up with a man in Midian, who is the priest in Midian. And he ends up marrying one of his daughters, Zipporah. And he lives out there in the wilderness, tending the flock for 40 years. And then God sends him back. And he said, I want you to go back into Egypt, the place where you ran away from. All the people who are seeking you are dead. You go back and you're going to lead my people out of there. The people that have been under bondage and oppression since you were a baby that had to be put in the Nile because people were trying to kill you. You have to go back and you have to liberate them and bring them out. Now we see that he wasn't afraid. Now we understand what verse 27 is saying. Look at the text. It says, by faith he left Egypt. Not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He goes back into there and he obeys God. And he and his brother Aaron, they go and they go to the, the king and they say, let my people go. And the king says, no. And so they bring a series of plagues, 10 of them, before Egypt is essentially destroyed. And just think about this for a second, the, 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 the narrative, the real life part of this. These are not just stories, everybody. This isn't just fiction. These are real people. So, so just think about this for a moment. Moses goes back. He's 80 years old. 80. 
I mean, how many people take up a new career when they're 80? He's not a young man. And he goes back and he reunites with his brother, who's now 83, and Miriam, who's in her mid-90s. And if we take Exodus 6 at face value, his parents are still alive. And so he goes back to Egypt. What a reunion that must have been. Forty years later, Moses is back. Wow, Moses, where have you been? Well, I've been out in Midian tending flocks. It's quite a demotion from being raised in the household of Pharaoh to being a shepherd. But you know, one of the things that you'll learn is that if God's going to use you, he has to humble you. And that's what happened with Moses. Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness being humbled. In fact, Moses is able to write of himself in the books of Moses that Moses was the most humble man who ever lived. Now, you've got, you, <laughs> you've got, to, be, you've got to be really, really humble to say that. Because otherwise, you know, you're going to expose yourself as not being humble. So I think he said it, he wrote it, and he meant it. He really was. He says, I'm not trying to be proud here. I'm just telling you, God made me the most humble person who's, you know, ever lived through situations like this. But he goes back and he meets up with his brother. And since Moses doesn't speak well, God says, okay, Aaron will be the mouthpiece for you. And they lead the people out of Egypt. That shows who he fears. He fears God, not the king doesn't mean you live a life of no fear. It means that you assign your fear to the right person. And so the way that faith looks in terms of the life of Moses here is that faith is demonstrated in the fact that you fear, but you fear God and not man. His parents were like that. He's like that. And he had to convince the others to do the same, whether it was Aaron or Miriam or the millions of people that would come out with him. But he did, and it showed up in the third area here, and that is how you live. So what you, what you value, who you fear, and then how you live. Notice here that he is the one who has to do something that has never been done before. Look at verse 28. By faith, he kept the Passover and he sprinkled the blood. You can stop there for a moment. He kept the Passover and he sprinkled the blood. You see, Moses was given instruction by God. He says, okay, this is what we're going to do. In order to bring all the people out, we are going to have one last plague that's going to fall over Egypt. And I'm going to send the angel of death, the angel of death, the messenger of death. Imagine that assignment. God says, go. And your job is in one night to slaughter every firstborn human being, male child, and even animal. Unless, unless you get there and over the doorpost is sprinkled the blood of a sacrificial lamb. Now, what kind of faith does it take to believe that all it's going to take to save your son is blood being sprinkled on your doorpost? I think it takes a lot. You see, Moses had to have faith to do what God asked him to do, and the people had to have faith that God would actually do what he said that he would do. And so as they take that animal and they kill it, they follow the instructions of Moses. They sprinkle the blood on the doorpost. And as that angel of death comes through on that fateful night all the way across Egypt, there is heard in the distance the wailing and the mourning as dawn arises and people realize that their firstborn is dead. In whole cities, 
everybody wakes up to their firstborn being dead. And it is only these few, these peasants, these slaves who are able to wake up the next morning with their firstborn saved. Now we know from the cumulative revelation as it is given to us year by year and generation by generation, that the real Passover lamb that is celebrated there is in Christ. He is the one who came to be the Passover lamb. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 7 calls him our Passover lamb. It was his sacrifice. In fact, the father was pleased to crush his only and firstborn son in order to rescue those who would be offered salvation through him. You see, there wasn't a way for the Passover lamb to pass over the Son of God because the Passover lamb was the Son of God. He is the one who was killed so that we can find our salvation in Him. He's the one who essentially had His blood splattered, not over a doorpost, but over a cross. He is the one who His own blood is taken then into the very holy of holies, His own blood sprinkled on the altar, His own blood on the mercy seat. His own blood saying that now, once and for all, my sacrifice is sufficient to pay for the price of all who would put their faith in me. You see, every sacrificial lamb up until that point pointed to Christ. Now, the author of the Hebrews knows that, but he's reminding those Hebrew listeners that it's the case. And he goes back into their own history to prove his point. So he looks at Moses, and he says he is an example of faith based on what you value, on who you fear, on how you live. He lived in obedience to God. Now, there's a wonderful application for us, I think, in terms, first of all, of the values that we have. You might ask yourself, okay, well, then how exactly does that work out for someone like me? How does that play out for us in everyday life? Well, first of all, I'd say this. By God's grace, you can overcome the sinful love of the world through faith. By the grace of God, you overcome that sinful love of the world. It's seen in humility. It's seen in dependence. As I said earlier, many people, especially if you're a leader, are going to go through seasons of humbling. You read through the book of Galatians, and Paul was set aside for 14 years after his conversion before he really had a public ministry. Moses in the wilderness for 40 years before God chooses to use him. There's going to be a humility that develops, a dependency that develops. And you pray that God would help you exchange your love and your fascination with trying to build and maintain things in this world and instead be willing to let them all go. There was a famous missionary named C.T. Studd. And uh, he was a cricket player, sort of a famous athlete at the time in England. And he was set to inherit a vast sum of money from his relatives. In fact, in 18, late 1880s, he was set to inherit thousands and thousands of pounds, which would have been millions and millions of dollars today. And yet, he was um, convinced that God was calling him to the mission field. And it's a very interesting story. In fact, he was um, converted, and then for about uh, six years, he was uh, what he calls backslidden. Um, and I know all the Calvinists are like, oh, I don't know about that, but that's what he said. He was backslidden. He, wasn't, he was saved, but he wasn't really walking with the Lord. He was sort of in this weird thing. And then, and then he actually went to a, a rally that was being held, an evangelistic uh, a rally that was held by um, D.L. Moody. And there he really says, oh, you know, I'm really strong in my faith and I want to serve the Lord. And he says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to just give everything away and I'm going to go to the mission field. He ended up joining Hudson Taylor. Remember him? And China became a missionary with him. 
but he decided to give everything away, his vast fortune. Gave a lot of it to Mueller, who had his orphanages. He gave some to other missions. And, and the last of, that he had left, the last money that he had, 3,500 pounds, about $500,000 today, he gave it to the woman who he was going to marry as a gift. So, so he gets engaged, and then he says, and here's half a million bucks. Now, I don't know if it was a test. <laughs> some of you women are like, find me that man. <laughs> but she says... I would rather start with a clean slate, and she also gave all of that away to various missions, and they went to the field basically without anything except depending upon the Lord. You see, he was willing to, to, to give up all the things that would have given him security in this world, not for nothing, but in exchange for what he believed to be the hundredfold return in a spiritual sense of all of the things that God had promised him as a reward. He says, I'm willing to do it. It's not even a, a discussion. It's an easy trade. And by the grace of the Holy Spirit, we can be moved in that way to do the same. And secondly, when it comes to what we fear, you have to overcome the fear of man by developing your fear of God. It was the case of Moses. We saw that in Exodus 15. It's the case of the midwives. Remember them in Egypt as well. They refused to obey the decree of the king, and they would not kill these male children that were born. You have to accept the rejection, the loss, the stigma that comes from being a follower of Christ. But what you exchange is something far greater. And then in terms of what it is that we do with our lives, we overcome the fear of obedience with the act of trust that comes developed within us by the power of the Holy Spirit again. It grows as you use it. It develops as you become more and more dependent upon the Lord. And then finally, you'll notice at the very end of this section, and we'll just wrap up with this, at the very end of the section, he says that he kept the Passover, he sprinkled the blood, he rescued the people, he delivered them out of Egypt so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. This is the purpose of the paragraph. What is the purpose of Moses' faith? The purpose of his faith was that God would use him to deliver others. And I can't help but remind you of this and call you this. If you're a Christian today, the faith that God has given you is a faith that you're able to use to deliver others, to give them that truth, to give them that gospel, to give them that true understanding that there is nothing that they can do to earn their salvation or earn the favor with God. Instead, it is simply turning their eyes to Him, to put their trust in Him, so if you're not a Christian here today and you're listening to this, you might be thinking, this is just completely foreign to me. This is all over my head. Um, I understand that, and, and I want to um, sort of be patient with you as we explain it. But maybe I can end with this illustration. I hope it'll help you see more clearly what we're talking about. It involves Moses. One of the things that was going on when the people were in the wilderness is that they were disobeying God. They were living in outright rebellion against Him. And God wasn't going to be mocked. He said, I've given you these particular lanes to stay in, and you're not, and, and you're committing all sorts of immoral acts. And so what he did was he allowed snakes to come into the camp and start biting the people. And many of them were dying because of these poisonous snakes that were coming in. And Moses intercedes for the people as he would do over and over again. And he says to the Lord, Lord, don't kill these people. Instead, give them a way of salvation. And, and God says, I will. He says, I want you to make a bronze serpent. Make a snake out of bronze. And I want you to put it up. And he says, anybody who goes and looks at that serpent will be healed. 
And what the people would do is they would come out of their tent, crawling, having been bitten by one of these poisonous snakes. Maybe they're swelling up. They feel like they're going to die, and they go crawling out, and they look at that bronze serpent. They don't do anything. They don't clean up their lives. They, they, they don't change anything. They just they look at that. And is looking at it what saves them? No. What, what it shows is they have the faith to believe. They have the faith that God told me to do that, and so that's what I'm doing. And they were healed. You know, that's exactly the illustration that Jesus gives to describe himself. He says, when the Son of Man is lifted up, when the Son of Man is lifted up like the bronze serpent, that he will save all of those who put their faith in him. So my invitation to you today, if the Lord is doing a work in your heart, is to look to that one who was pierced, that one who was killed for you, that one who, who was crushed for you, and to put your faith in him, believing not only that he will forgive you, not only that he'll give you a new heart, not only that, that he, will, he will redeem you and that he will, he will lavish upon you his grace and forgiveness, but that there will also be on the other side of that cross a reward that far exceeds anything that would cost you in this life. That's always the message of the gospel. It's not just give it all up. It's exchange it. Forget it. Drop this thing that is never going to bring you joy, satisfaction, and forgiveness anyway, and exchange it for something that is offered to you for free that will give you everything. You don't exchange everything for nothing. You exchange nothing for everything. That's the essence of the good news. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this truth. Thank you for the example that you gave us in Moses who did that. Lord, we know that we don't look to him as some kind of moral person that we're to model our lives after, but rather as somebody who was given your grace to act in a way that demonstrates the faith that he had already in his heart. Lord, we thank you for um, the examples that you've given us. And as we've been studying through this book of Hebrews, I pray that you would just be reinforcing to us week in and week out the reality that is faith and faith alone that saves Lord, as that faith is even coming under attack today by those who want to smuggle in some kind of good works, something to add to the faith, Lord, I ask that you would protect us from that kind of thinking and that we would maintain a pure gospel that is uninhibited by man's earthly wisdom, unencumbered by a number of works that must be done in order to secure it, and that it wouldn't be confused with anything else, but rather than just the pure, sweet, free grace that is offered to us in Christ Jesus, to all who would come to him. You say that anyone who comes to you, you won't cast out. You tell us that those who are weak and heavy laden with their own guilt and with their own works can come to you and find rest. And so we simply hold you to your own promise. And that if there are those here today who know that they are carrying around a burden that one day will crush them, that today would be the day when by your grace you lift it off and you remind them that everything you leave them with is light and a joy and filled with hope as we look to your return. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.